Recorded live. Hey, good evening. Welcome to another Helping Other States conference call for Thursday, June the 1st, 2617 at 7.41 p.m. or late. And here's the business. Me is bearing false witness, misrepresentation, posting, inflammatory, and public forms is forbidden, shall be addressed in an appropriate manner. Eliminate all conflicts and false allegations. There anyone intends that today's being this member, agent of any law enforcement or public agency, the federal, state, county, city, or township agency is present. Is there any responsibility decision for the first time? Hearing none, this means bearing false witness, misrepresentation, posting, inflammatory, in public forums is forbidden, shall be addressed in an appropriate manner. Eliminate all conflicts and false allegations. Is there anyone intends that today's being? As a member, agent of any law enforcement or public to a federal, state, county, city, or township agency is present. And is there any responsibility decision for the second time? Here, non third and final time, this may inspire bearing false witness, misrepresentation, boasting inflammatory rights in public forums is forbidden, shall be addressed in an appropriate manner to eliminate all conflict and false allegations. Or anyone intends to today's meeting as a member, agent of any law enforcement or public agency of federal, state, City Township, Under County City Township Agency is present in their responsibility system for third and time. Here, none. Senior, I turn the floor over to you. Thank you very much. You might want to join me, Nick. 460 Dash one nine six again. That's four six zero dash one one eight dash one nine six four sixty one eighteen one ninety six. That's a good number. You will not get that number again. Sorry. Thank you, everyone, for being on the call tonight. And uh, we'll take off where we left off last week. Linda, would you like to start, please? Yes, I will. Um, We finished, um, let's see, we answer 14 and answer 15. Answer 14 was covenant for the state, and then he was covenant for the county. Emily did that, and um, I'd like to ask if Emily's on the call tonight. Okay, is Buck on the call? Yeah, he is. <laughs> okay, Buck. Thank you. Okay, um, uh, Jonathan, would you do answer 16? Sure. 16 is the JCO or the Juro Covenant of Office. This is kind of a, uh, I don't need to read it, do I? Um, it, it's kind of the oh. contract of the individual, between the individual and the assembly. You are contracting, you're pledging that you will you're joining, you're of um, like mind, and you're willing to support the effort, and you're willing to be there when you're needed 
that you're willing to um, serve on a grand jury if your number is drawn, and uh, it's it's really your contract to other assembly members also that uh, you can be dependent upon that you will be there when when you're needed. Um, short of reading it, I I guess that's what I need to say. I yield. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, makes this, the part that I like the best is it makes an elector and eligible to be put in the jury pool. Be drawn from the jury pool. Say Any again. other comments? Oh, I like the part that I like the best about the JCO is it makes us an elector and um, we are part of the jury pool then. Okay. Okay. Um, any comments? Any questions? Any, any more additions? descriptive input other than what I had to say? <laughs> well, I don't know about input. I, I guess I do kind of have a question. Um, as far as the See, so it's a general covenant of office. I'm just curious to know because I don't know if all you guys know this or not, but there is a specific definition or difference in the term and law, at least in the common law, between a covenant and a contract. A covenant technically is supposed to be under the under a seal. I don't know if you guys require everybody to get a seal or that you promote. I mean, I do. Whenever I do classes and teach people about law, I, I make it a point that everybody should get their own seal, the seal of their own house, which should also be used for the seal of their court so then they can sign or they can seal paperwork and make it a covenant. So I was just, I guess, kind of curious if you guys actually have people seal them with their seal or um, I think we have county seals. We have a state seal also, um, as a, not, not as an individual seal necessarily, but the JCO is your oath of office. And it has we we've got our seal on it, our state seal. Okay, I, yeah, it wasn't the, it wasn't the state seal I was talking about because if you if okay, so somebody else comes in and they sign it and they say, okay, I'm going to take this or I'm going to make this covenant. If it's something that is an action of one of the people themselves, and I'm just saying this for clarification, I, it's obviously not a critical thing because every assembly can obviously do what they want to do, um, but I'm just saying that there's a specific definition and difference between a covenant and a contract and, the co and, a, and a seal is required in order for technically the term covenant to be used on a document. Say, I, I make sure that, every, like I said, everybody I teach to, to make their own seal. And if you would allow me like one sentence out of the Illinois, 1818 Illinois Constitution, I just want to make my point about it. 
there's a section in the 1818 Constitution regarding seals. It's in the schedule section. Um, it's after the whole Constitution is written up, and this is just the schedule. So this is basically, okay, we've got to do this stuff now that we've created this thing, or how do we get it going? Anyway, Section 6 of the schedule says, the governor of this state shall make, a, make use of his private seal until a state seal shall be provided. Now, to me, that tells me, at least in 1818, because they wouldn't have any idea who was going to be governor, but at least in 1818, they knew, without question, to be able to place this into the schedule of the 1818 Constitution, that they knew that everybody had their own seal. And I'm trying to bring that back because it's extremely important in the common law. There are references upon references upon references about you using your own seal for things and the necessity of having a seal. And that little part out of the 1818 Illinois Constitution, when I found that, I said, oh, okay, this is, I mean, to me, I had already studied this well, but it was just another reiteration of the fact that, yeah, everybody used to have their own seal because how would they possibly put that line in there? The governor of this state shall make use of his private seal until a state seal shall be provided. Very interesting. Oh, yes, I got your point. Very interesting. Well, we are going to okay. have to keep our eyes peeled for that kind of stuff now. Oh, right. Very cool. And I just today created a document for because I'm teaching a class this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to teach a class on, on court procedure and writing paperwork and the whole everything, everything just dealing with court. Um, but I thought about it for a second. I was like, well, okay, these people are going to need their own seal because they're going to have to – when you have your own court of record, your own sovereign court of record, a court of record is supposed to have its own seal. So if the sovereign of the court comes forward, and so where's the seal, right? I'm not going to use the county seal. <laughs> I guarantee you that. You know, I have to have my own seal for my own court. Um, right. So I had to make up a document today to teach people how to go make these seals and what to put on them and, like, ideas to put on them. So I will email that document to ComSec now if you guys want it. Very cool. Thank yes. you. Yes. Um, okay. You know, uh, we, do have a, we do have a state seal, and that's, that's – we made that – well, it's one that was made – Gosh, it's been a long time, um, and we have that all over the place. But that's not an individual seal, right? That's cool for all of you guys getting together and deciding that you're doing something as a large group and saying, "Yep, we're sealing this with our state seal." That's that's the state seal. That's all of you powered behind it, and all of all yeah. of you together powered behind it with the power of the people. The individual seal is the power of your house and your sovereignty in your individual capacity in the common law. Yeah. And that's okay. that's the difference gotcha. of it. So, okay, okay, I'll email that off to you guys, and I'll yield because I've been on this for a while. I have a comment to make. Um, yes. Originally, and, and maybe Senior can shed a little more light on this, originally I understand that the JCO was thumbprinted in red ink as to, you know, authenticate the individual's um, seal, if you will. But in addition to the appellation, you know, his, his autograph, they, by three witnesses, they, they used to have that 
red ink uh, thumbprint as a seal. And uh, I was wondering what, what, why there was some reason why we discontinued that. And uh, I yield. Well, my history in researching the seal all across the planet, not not just European use of it, is that it, from my research, it appears as though that the Eastern cultures, particularly the Japanese, all the way through the history of the Japanese, uh, certainly through medieval Japan, everybody used their right thumbprint as their seal, and it was sealed at the the, the right thumbprint was placed at the bottom because they write from they write on the page from top to bottom. And then they'll move over a line and then top to bottom, then move over a line, top to bottom. It was always at the bottom of the column, and then their name would be the last symbol. And then underneath that was their thumbprint. That's how many of the Eastern, and the Chinese as well, um, use their thumbprint. Now, that, to the best my knowledge can figure out, is that that system of the use of the thumbprint migrated from the East to the West through the Silk Road. And then people in the Middle East started using it, and then people, certain uh, certain groups uh, in Europe started using it as well. The the history of the European seal came from a, I guess, more or less along the lines of of a craft that was very intricate in uh, metalworking, intricate metalworking of details of things, and so they had the capacity to make stamps that. That would they'd put the wax down and then place the stamp on it so that that reverse image would come out on it and only people of that that had wealth because it it took money like it, you had to hire a metal a metallurgist a, a smith or not even a smith it had to be someone skilled at this to to make a seal and then on on top of that you'd also have to have somebody a jeweler and whatnot to make a signet ring which is the same aspect of your seal it's just smaller so you can carry it with you wherever you're wandering around at. Um, so if you have to do a contract on the side of the street, you would just do it. Now, the reason for the that seal being more prevalent with merchants and others is that, now granted a lot of merchants were, but the, the level of uh, literacy was very low. So a lot of people couldn't even like write their name. But this seal was passed on from, from generation to generation to generation of your house or those of the the same the same you know uh, last name, so that's the that's the European side of it and the Eastern side of it. I've seen everybody. Basically, your seal is whatever you decree it to be. I've worked with uh, a gentleman and I. In fact, we just finished it up two days ago. We finally put this thing to sleep. We've been working on this dumb thing for I don't know four or five years. Not non-stop obviously but it's been going back and forth what we call it is the seal notice you take this document and you record it um at any on any public record doesn't really matter where just as long as it's not public record get a get a public recorder number back and then you place people on notice that look this is my seal any document from now on that does not have both my signature and this seal cannot be considered to be signed willfully, knowingly, and not under protest and duress. And it also says in the seal notice document that any, because, because what Andy did, he's brilliant about the way he uses words. What he did was he, he put a, a, a shadow of doubt on 
every single one of these contracts that are floating around out there in the corporate space and with the corporate government. Yeah. He said, anything that doesn't have this seal attached to it because of the fraud, and he doesn't, he doesn't state what the fraud is. He just says, because, of, because I've been now aware of fraud, anything that doesn't have this seal also attached to my signature cannot be considered to have been signed willfully, knowingly, full disclosure, or not under protest and the rest. So it kind of does a, it's a double-edged sword, the seal notice is. It takes care of noticing that this is your seal, and there's a place specifically on the document to, to seal it. And it also plays a shadow of a doubt of all these other things that obviously don't have your seal connected to it. So from this moment forward, when I do something, my seal will be on it, and you will know that this is something that I fully uh, back, and, and it will also be a covenant because of that. So I'll, I'll send you the how to make the seal, and I'll send you guys the seal notice, too. How's that? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'll One other addition. Since we are sometimes having to deal with the de facto courts and the de facto system because they don't speak the same language we do and, and we don't recognize their language, but we have to occasionally... Um, communicate back and forth, and some of us do have uh, a notary. Um, we've registered as notary republic uh, in the state of Michigan anyway. And oh, yeah. can I yield? Yeah, that's part of our, that's part of our, our program. Okay. Well, I've, um, I've got a... Um, I have well, I have a I have an aspect of the whole notary thing. Um, the 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 problem that I have with notaries is that notaries technically are they're under ecclesiastical law from the standpoint that they're basically clerics. And if you read the definition, and you can pretty much find it in almost any legal dictionary. Go and read and find the definition of the word counterdeed. Look that up and then take a whole different thought about if you want to go and get something notarized. Because when I read that definition, I thought, wow, that is messed up. And, what it, and I'm going to butcher the quote because I don't have it in front of me. But basically what it says is that a counterdeed is a deed done in secret or before a notary that destroys alters or obliterates a public deed done. So you come along, you create something. This is my deed. This is my will. You sign your signature on it. They come along and they counter deed it underneath it. Why do I have to have anything, any quote-unquote authority above me to state that this is my public deed done? I don't. And when I read that definition of counterdeed, I didn't like it. And one of my mentors was was like very strong about the fact to never use a notary for that reason. And what what she did, and what I've done on a lot of my documents, is just place a quorum. A quorum is four. Now, technically, when you have a quorum and you look through uh, the Magna Carta, the barons of the grand jury it says that a quorum will be four. The four quorum are the ones that are supposed to go to the king to bring the grievances from the grand jury. 
quorum of the four is also the minimal amount that you need to legislate law based on, and this even goes back beyond uh, written language even, um, that, you know, two is a couple, three is a group, and then four is like the beginning of what you could consider to be a society. And if you have four and you have all four quorums sign it, then that is as good as a as a notary. And you'll see that at, you'll you'll see the whole quorum section at the bottom of the seal notice. So you guys can just read it when you get it, and you'll, you'll get what I'm getting okay. at. But look up the word counter deed, and, and I yield because yeah, that was my two cents on that. Oh, thank you, thank you. But, that was more that was more like three cents or more. <laughs> I get forty. Sorry, Linda. Do you, yes, do you recall why we discontinued the red ink thumbprint? Well, I thought about that as you said it, and the first thing that came to my mind was what I'm going to say, and nothing else. Has, I haven't thought about anything else since then. And it, the, what I thought was this. Tim Turner and his gang were monetizing Uh-oh. our signatures, our seal, our thumbprint seal was attached to those documents. Okay. So when that when that whole thing happened and we revised our documents to take out boxes, take out lines and you, and that that went too. Okay. I know that that's the time that it went. And now we don't have that. But that doesn't mean we can't start using it again. But with the information that Dave's sending, we can um, we'll study up on that and evaluate all of that then. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, the next one is D-U-R. Answer 16 on the screen. Paul Thompson, would you please do that one? The Declaration of Unalienable Rights. This is a declaration that's made by everyone that is taken on as a member. And this document proclaims your status under common law that were set apart. This document and the DOI together enumerate and proclaim your status. And this is these documents is what sets you apart and makes you that allows you to be considered for the People's Grand Jury. Right. There's a, there's a lot more to this. If you're going to sit down and and construct these documents, we would have to we would have to outline these documents and tell you first of all what the purpose is and exactly what it contains and and what uh, you need to derive from having this put together. But basically, it's a document of status. 
it's a proclamation of unalienable rights. You're you're putting that out there, and it's signed, and that's a document that you keep with you. All members have this document. Are you right? Right. Any comments? Additions? Uh, I got Question? an addition regarding. Regarding, I guess, more or less along the lines, uh, declarations in general, um, do you know that there is, or are supposed to be, seven parts to a declaration at law, and there's nine parts to a bill in equity? Did you guys know that? Because I was creating, it's funny, you guys caught me going over two things that I just finished today. Um, there was a doc, and I'm going to see if I can find it. I'll send that to you if I can find it. Um, I just finished a doc talking about the, talking about a declaration and what has to be in a declaration. Because when you, and by the way, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, all, all seven of them are in there. And the doc that I put together, basically I took from three different law dictionaries, and then I put an example of the uh, Declaration of Independence in it so that people could see what it was. And um, there, I found it. Okay, here we go. I'll just read this off. Um, okay, one, uh, the Declaration in an Action at Law answers to the bill in bill and chancery, basically meaning that they're they're opposite. You either have a declaration at law or you do a bill and chancery. Um, it, may be con it may be considered with reference to those general requirements or qualities which govern the whole declaration to its, for to, sorry, to its form, particular parts, and requisites. Uh, one, the general requisite for qualities of declaration are, first, that it correspond with the process. And they're talking about a writ. But in, when we would do a declaration, it would mean it would correspond with our will. Because when we do a declaration, like these open declarations, like what you were just speaking about, and also, truthfully, the Declaration of Independence as well, it was a declaration of the will of the people, just saying, hey, we're declaring this. I mean, it was also an indictment against a lunatic, but it, it, that's like an aside. Um, so, it, so it follows the practice. Uh, secondly, the second general requisite of a declaration is that it contains a statement of all the facts necessary in point of law to sustain the action and no more. So you don't, in a declaration, you want to state exactly what you're stating and nothing else. Just that stuff, that's it. Thirdly, the circumstances must be stated with certainty and truth. The certainty necessary in a declaration is to a certain intent in general, which should pre pervade the whole declaration and is particularly required in setting forth, one, the parties. That means, okay, I'm this. Like, you state what you are, and you state what they are. So you, you set your status, basically. So first, the parties must be stated with certainty who the parties are, and therefore a declaration by or against so and so forth, right? Uh, that uh, they... And the venue, the place. So in this place, so you state who you are, the place you're doing it, who who you're sending it to, um, and that, and the reasons for it is basically the beginning. Um, the 
Thirdly, after you say where you are, what you're doing, and who you are, thirdly, the commencement. What is termed the commencement of a declaration follows the venue of the margin precedes the more circumstantial statements of the cause of action. I am giving you this declaration because the commencement. This is why you're being given this thing, right, to set up or to fix or to do whatever or to state whatever. Fourthly, the statement of cause, uh, in which the requires, it requires the requisites of certainty before mentioned uh, necessities according to the circumstances of each particular declaration. Um, so you say, look, these are, these are the circumstances and these are the, this is the cause, this is the reason. Um, fifth, uh, the declaration may consist of, of certain counts. So the counts are where you say, look, this is what you guys have done to me. And then sixth, in personal, uh, in mixed actions, it, there should be some sort of conclusion. You should conclude to say, hey, this is what I'm going to do now from now on because you guys have done all this, or this is what I want from you because you guys have done all this. Or this is what we're going to do because you guys have done all this. And then last, seventh, seventhly, uh, the, it's called the profert and the pledges. An action of a suit of, and think about the profert and the pledge of the Declaration of Independence. What's, what does it say at the end? We pledge to each other, oh, sorry, we pledge to ourselves and each other our, our property, our lives, and our sacred honor. Right? That's the profert and the pledge at the end of the Declaration of Independence. So those are the seven parts of a declaration. And they all got to be in there or else you don't have a declaration. That's, and so I'm just, I've never seen your guys' declaration at all. I'm just saying that's what, it's, that's what's got, that's what should be in there if you're going to call it a declaration. And I yield. Oh. Well, I think, I think we'll, now that's something you're going to send, that little. Yeah, I was just I was just reading from my notes on declarations that I just created today for my class on Saturday and Sunday. So yeah, I'll send that doc. Okay. Well you know what we can do. Yeah, thank you very much. And um what we'll do is we'll check to see if every if everything is in there. Well, it's in there because it's in the we're just re signing the original declaration of independence of the United States of America. What yeah. the document is. We're putting our signature on that document. David, have you ever looked at the Declaration of Independence in 1776? Did that did that document follow your outline? Yes, yes. The committee that created the Declaration of Independence knew at that time all the seven parts of a declaration at law. And that's exactly what that thing is because, like I said, it's technically – it's technically an indictment. It's basically a charge, like I said, against a lunatic. And you have exactly the same thing when, if you were to file against somebody else in a court of record, you say, I come upon an action of trespass. Okay, that's the action. That's what you're doing. In the action of trespass, you have a declaration at law. If you were at a court of equity, not at common law, it would be a bill in chancery. Okay. If you were in ecclesiastical court, it would be called an allegation. And if you were in, I don't, I can't remember, there's another goofy specific name for admiralty that they call them. And then for military, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a marshal of the court or a court marshal. And you are either uh, uh, in honor or dishonor, and that's where you get the difference between an honorable discharge and a dishonorable discharge. 
Um, so these are the different things in the different jurisdictions of law, the five, the five different jurisdictions of law, what these specific things are called. So you have an action at law, common law, and then a declaration is inside the action. So what Jefferson and the rest of those guys did is they created this declaration that said, look, we are basically putting you on trial from the other side of this ocean. And here's the declaration to all of the world to say, this is what you're being tried with. But because they had no particular court to take it to, they were kind of just doing it as a whole together at the Continental Congress. You see what I was getting at? So it's like, okay, we're doing it. This is what we're saying. We're indicting you. Here's the declaration. Uh, and yes, to answer your question, it does follow all of them. Um, against you, uh, King George, who's obviously, you know, depraved, crazy, idiot, lunatic. So, yeah. And I yield. Yeah. David, the, the uh, <clears throat> world court in Belgium didn't exist at that time, correct? Uh, no, not in the way that it does now, no. There was there was beginning to be types of the closest thing that was at like quote unquote a world court at that time would have been types of admiralty courts that would have been able to pull certain countries into certain jurisdictions, but it was only in the sea, and it would only have been based upon and focused from the beginning of admiralty law, which was uh, started in William the Third's reign in England, and then other than that. The only other kind of world, quote-unquote, court you would have had would have been ecclesiastical courts of all of the Christ, all of Christendom that are overrun, or not, sorry, not overrun, but uh, are basically controlled by canon. And canon is the, is the dictates of, the, of Rome, basically, as far as their law is concerned. Uh, so that was the closest thing that you had as any sort of world-controlled court, which is exactly the reason why many of the uh, immigrants came here, the colonists came here, was to get, get away from the star chamber courts of, the, of, of chancery and the ecclesiastical courts and the control of the bishops of one's inheritance from the... Uh, Ecclesiastic, ecclesiastical courts. Th those two courts were the two that were continuing to eat away at the, I guess, the power and the legitimacy, well, not legitimacy, because truth be told, the king's bench and courts of common law are the only place where you have natural law. That's, that's where you put, you know, what you consider to be, you know, do no harm. That's where you put people on trial from, it, from that standpoint. So these two other jurisdictions were starting to really be severe problems and, and really destroying people's liberties. And the people that came here had had enough of it. And it, it stemmed from greedy merchant bankers on the equity chancery side and the admiralty side, and then the cult of Rome controlling everything through canon through the ecclesiastical courts on the other side. And they were, chop, they were chopping up power. And we had enough of it. And all of the founding fathers knew this. All of them knew it. So I hope that answers the question. Yes, so what this country did is it brought into an existence a declaration that it could not get adjudicated. 
Right, because there was no way that they were going to be able to adjudicate it across the across the Atlantic. And then you got to remember, shortly after uh, the uh, the breakout with of all the hostilities that happened in Boston and Massachusetts, um, the Declaration of Independence was pretty much solidified by the fact that King George sent back a communique to the Continental Congress basically saying that everybody that joins the rebels or has anything to do with them is basically going to be hung and shot for treason. Well, that united them all and said, oh, well, guess what? We're all in this together. So here we go. We're going to declare it. We're going to do a declaration and indict you right back and say, look, forget you, you know, enough of this. Basically, come get it, you know. Yeah. It's basically like that uh, saying there, I think it was in the Greeks, you know, when they asked them to throw down their weapons and they says, come and take them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, Linda. All righty. Oh, wow. That was, that was a good explanation there. Um. Our next answer is number 17, the DOI, but I think that was covered by Paul also. Now, Nick, do you have anything um, that you might want to say about that? I was going to ask you to take on the DOI. These documents set us apart is what they do. Set us apart from everyone else. This is why we're private, but we're also public. You know, we set ourselves apart to on this endeavor. This is what I've told everybody. I said, you can't take a school bus, <clears throat> go down the street and load it up with people. It's going to be a grand jury for the people because that's not going to happen. These people have to make their declaration that they're set apart from exactly what we're not holding to. So the Declaration of Independence, the DOI, is part of that. Are you? Right. Okay. Okay. Um, now the next answer is answer 18 on the screen. And um, I would like to take that one if, if, if um, no one else wants to. Um, if you do, speak up real quick. Um, answer 18 is from de facto to de jure handbook. And that is on. That is actually the name of it from Detective to Tissure Handbook, and it is 56 pages, and it's on our um, uh, First Michigan Assembly Info website. And all um, all the states are encouraged to read this handbook and follow each of these steps to return their state to the, the original jurisdiction. And um, the western states are just a little bit different than the, than the original states, but there is such a thing called the equal footing doctrine. And that actually is one of the items in the content page. And um, 
I don't know what else to say about it. I know everyone knows about it. Everyone knows what the contents are for this um, handbook. And I'd like to read the table of contents, but I won't. Preface and the summation are really good. One would start with those two as they're going through this um, handbook. That would be very good. Very good to um, start out with. Um, are there any questions? Any comments? Starts out with the documents authority. Um, it, starts, it goes on to um, a little bit of history, nation states project, notice to the Hague, open letter and a public notice, and then some things that you need to do in your assembly as you're setting up your assembly. You have to take care of your civil peace flag, and then it shows um, you have to study up on the civil peace flag, and then it shows the Michigan state flag. <clears throat> Mission statement. We don't have a we have an example of how to settle your state and uh, with a county settlement covenant, and then how to establish your state government officials. Now that's really important. That that involves your state. And electing interim officers at the national level, and then of course there's um, official notifications and certification that you have to have for all of your your notices, and especially to the Hague. And then um, some of the documents, our three documents are in there. Any comments? Any questions? Yeah, I was curious to know, like, how many pages the uh, the handbook for setting up the. Basically, you have an assembly handbook, and then you have a grand jury handbook. I was just curious to know how many pages you had for the assembly handbook. And I know I know there's more than just the assembly in there, but it, the de facto book. I'm sorry, you. Your your sentences were breaking up, and I didn't hear all the answer. I mean, the question. Oh. To your question. Okay. Um, I said, how many pages is the de facto to de jure handbook? Fifty-six. Okay. And then I was curious as to know how many pages your guys' grand jury handbook was. I don't even know. Um, oh, Nick might be. Nick might know that better than anyone. I know we've got one. <laughs> Thirty-three pages. Okay. About Thirty-three pages. Yep. Okay. Thank you. I was just because I've been collecting grand jury handbooks from across the nation as of late, and I'm actually going to get another one soon. Um, and I'm just trying to get a general feel of like how much information people tend to place into them. So it was just kind of a general question. It, so thank you, though, and I yield. <clears throat> I think we made ours concise. Okay. Um, 
That was number 18 on the screen. The next one is answer 19. And I was wondering if Buck could take that one, please. Grand Jury Handbook. Buck there? He's gone. He must have oh, had well. to do something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're back to the start. Jonathan, would you mind? <clears throat> well, basically, it's um, the procedure you use to set up a grand jury, the different parts and responsibilities of the members of the grand jury. You have to have a grand jury foreman. You've got to have a scribe, someone to uh, keep record. And uh, everything is done behind closed doors. The, the people are given numbers instead of names. Um, so the people are not put in jeopardy as an individual. They're not known publicly. Um, it, it's pretty much a complete uh, procedure to follow when setting up, and and uh, you're looking for a bill or no bill, uh, and whether it's you're you're, you're looking for judgment as to guilt and judging the law, to whether it's a just law or not. And the Grand Jury Handbook pretty much describes a lot of that information. And uh, someone else can add more to that if they like, and I yield. <laughs> The grand jury handbook was set up in order that it was a guideline for when when there was a presentation made, <clears throat> the commissioner used this book to direct all the procedures and the processes in order to come on you know to come into fruition and put this together and to have all the officers in place and to have the bookkeepers in place to have the proper Everything, all done properly. That's why this book was put together, so there wouldn't be any mistakes and anything left out. Go ahead, David. Yeah. I was going to say, did you guys add anything? Because I, for a long time, was thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't add it. And I saw that a lot of states actually do this. And the thing is that, do you have a a civil aspect of the grand jury? Now, what I mean by that is, at least because uh, I snagged this one, from, I don't even know how I found it, but I got it from California. And what I mean by civil grand jury side is, it, is that, in, at least in California and a few other states that I found, so I, I don't know how many there are. The grand jury, there's actually two grand juries in each county. One runs the entire county civil government. All of it. It goes through uh, committees, and these committees work on all of the budgets, 
including sheriff's budgets, including court budgets, and can take the information from any county, municipality, waterworks, road, all of it. And they completely control the entire civil running of the government in the county. And there's two separate grand juries. The one civil grand jury does all that. They run for half a year. What they do, they have li- they have layouts for committees and whatnot to take care of these various different things. And they have uh, decisions about how many committees you can be on, and tells you how to do the reports. And the the last grand jury before you gives you the reports of what they've found, and it it continues to be in the at least in California, it seems to be. There's, there's an office where they're all kept, but it's basically at the civil grand jury office. And these reports get traded, well, not traded, but given to the next, into the next, into the next grand jury. And, okay, here, I looked it up. I was going to give you an example of some of these committees. So you understand what I'm saying, because when I looked at this, I was shocked. All right, civil grand jury committees. We've got, the main, these are the main committees first. I'll read them and then I'll go underneath just to get an idea. And I don't need to read all of them because there's an awful lot of them here. We've got administration and financial, infrastructure, law and justice, transportation and facilities, health and human services, art and education. Now I'll go back up to infrastructure. Under infrastructure, we have building inspection, bureau of, we have city planning, Developing and commission. Electricity, development of. Fire department, health system, housing accountability, housing authority, public utilities commission, public works, redevelopment, rents. Anyway, you get the point. Water development, telecommunications. The civil grand jury controls all of this. And I was was kind of shocked because I said to myself, wow, that's really powerful. And why can't we do the same thing? Now, I thought to myself when I was writing the grand jury manual, if I try to put this, because I did, I mean, I put it in there, but I put this little kind of caveat before it, kind of warning thing saying, if you're living in a state that doesn't have civil grand juries, to try to implement all of this in a state that doesn't already have civil grand juries is going to be a monumental upward climb of a mountain that you might not want to try and get up. But if you live in a state where these things are already implemented and you come in and you decide that, okay, we're now our 25-member grand jury and we're controlling the entire county budget, if you don't like what they're doing or they're going to build another jail, you just shut it down. So anyway, I was just curious if you guys had any of, this, any of the civil side in there or even knew that it existed because technically until I started doing all this research, the grand jury manual, I didn't know. Now you David, do you feel that this is a perversion from the original intention of of the grand jury? No, I don't think it's a perversion at all. I think it's a way that the that the fourth leg of government or the people directly control all governance of everything in the county. I don't think it's a perversion at all. I think it's the way that we should govern ourselves. Because if we're sovereign and we're governing ourselves and we meet in assemblies, Shouldn't there be some organization of the people that constantly watchdog over every single 
municipality, all these corporate municipalities and all these things that are supposed to be doing all this stuff for us, who's watching over them? Well, obviously in California, it's the grand jury. I just didn't know this until I did all this research for the grand jury manual. So to me, it makes perfect sense. But like I said, I got that caveat where, well, if you're living in a state that this is not something that they already have set up to create this, to set it up and say, hey, oh, by the way, state legislature, we're going to now take care of our counties ourselves and do everything on our own volition, thank you very much, that might be really hard to get done. But I put it into my grand jury manual because I knew that there were states out there that had it, like California's, and I took a lot of it from the particular one that I got from California, and I was just curious to know if you guys had anything as far as the civil side in yours. Now, like I said, it is a separate grand jury. Two grand juries run at the same time. In, in all the California counties, one's criminal and one's civil. Uh, I, somewhere along the way, they said where a common law grand jury exists, the de facto has to step down. So how can they have both at the same time? Well, no. Well, we you would have well you would have two de jure grand juries. You'd have one de jure civil grand jury and one de jure criminal grand jury. And the criminal grand jury would would do investigations and would be what it's always been, which is an accusatory body, because the grand jury doesn't decide guilt or innocence of anything. Unless, well, I take that back. There's one example where a grand jury does decide guilt or innocence, and it's called uh, it's on a. Let me think of it for a second. It's a way where the grand jury can retry a case. Um, well, rid of a taint. That's what it's called. A grand jury can literally retry any petite jury's case in its entirety if someone brings to the grand jury or comes upon a writ of a taint to the grand jury and says, hey, I think I've been wrong. I think this entire jury was rigged or I, I think the judge railroaded me and he didn't let me have any evidence. I'm going to come upon a writ of a taint and I'm going to bring it directly to the grand jury, and I want you guys to retry this entire case in its entirety. And and they can do it. A grand jury can overturn a a, a petite jury's decision if they come up, if if the plaintiff that brings the writ of a taint decides to do that, and they can completely flip it over. But sorry, I'm getting I'm digressing. Um, so yeah, there's they're both de jure though. There's there's one civil and one criminal, but they're both de jure. So you just make them. You just chuck both the de facto's out and come in with 25 on both sides. Amazing. Yeah, that's what I thought. So how did the so, people? How are the people chosen for these positions on this civil grand jury? Well, from the standpoint of looking at, well, here's the okay. Then I'll attach this to the email that I'm sending you guys because I haven't sent it out yet. This is uh, California's. The one I'm looking at is the Civil Grand Jury Manual for California. It is 186 pages. It was printed 1999 to 2000. That was the year for it. It is for City and County of San Francisco, California. And it's all in here. And it's, pretty, it's fairly concise, and it, and it tells them how they pick them. I don't know how you were talking about because we can we can pick however we want to pick them. You know, they have a jury pool, and it explains the jury pool in here and whatnot. Um, I suppose I could flip through this thing until I found it. 
to answer your immediate question, because I know they do say it in here about how they pick them. And it's basically for voter registration, I mean, as far as on the de facto side, it's basically for voter registration the same way that they would, that they, we would do it on the on the de jure side. Here, here's everybody that's out, has their status properly corrected. They're all in the jury pool. Here, you got picked this week. Or, you can, sorry, you got picked for half the year or the quarter, however you want to run it. Another thing that I think about this is how would the townships or the towns or the villages or the cities be represented in the well, uh, civil grand jury? That's interesting. I don't recall if they mentioned anything specific regarding townships in this particular manual or not. But I, you, you know, in general, a township has its own council, which the people assemble and have council assembly meetings and they get together and they talk about what they want to do and so forth. And they, they run it basically like you guys would run an assembly meeting. And then they decide what's going on and they do motions and whatnot. So a, a township kind of has its own control in its own way by its own township board. But the, because the civil grand jury controls the county, everything dealing with the county. So everything that wouldn't be dealing with the county business would fall, toward, fall to the duty of the townships that would have to take care of, say, their roads that weren't county roads or their infrastructure that wasn't county. That's basically how I would see it. And that would make logical sense because... You w you wouldn't want everybody stepping on each on each other's toes. So that's the best I can say it off the top off the cuff as far as how that would run until I can actually find this particular aspect of what you were exactly saying. Hmm. You see, in the in the times past, it wasn't maybe fifteen years ago. The uh, township supervisors made up the county commission, and. The, the township supervisors got together there once or twice every month at the county meeting, and they decided what was going to go on because they had the input from the people, they had the input from the township, and they knew what the issues were in each individual township. So there was a direct link there, a nexus between the people in the township, the township, and the county. All three levels were represented. See, and then they perverted the whole thing. The Constitution for Michigan does not state anything about county commissioners. And now they have seven county commissioners, in this county anyway, and they're elected at election time, and they get together at the county commission meeting, and, and they make policy and make decisions. But the township is not... Uh, represented. Well, then maybe there should be some sort of way that we six, because I hadn't thought about the whole township issue until you brought it up. So I yeah. would probably have to alter that in the grand jury manual, but I hear what you're saying. In a way, what they became when they came to the county 
in that larger group, they were sort of, they were, well, they were basically acting as the county civil grand jury, more or less. But they had been elected on the township level to then bring that information to the county, and then they acted as the civil grand jury of the county. Mm-hmm. See, this goes back to taxation without representation. Uh, yeah, we, sure, yeah, it does. You're right. Yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I finally found it whilst I was scrolling along here. Um, it said, uh, impalement, grand jury impalement. In any, and this is California, this is how they do it in the de facto. In any county or city, the presiding judge of the superior court may order and direct the impanelment at any time of one additional grand jury pursuant to this section. The presiding judge shall elect persons at random from the list of trial jurors in civil and criminal cases and shall examine them to determine if they are competent to serve as grand jurors. Now, see that little part right there? That, there's, that is completely unlawful. But anyway. Yes, it is. Yeah, but we just got to remind ourselves we're reading from a de facto. But anyway, I'll just continue. While a sufficient number of com- uh, competent persons have been, which is an oxymoron, have been selected, they shall constitute an additional grand jury. Now, what they're talking about here is an actual second criminal grand jury, I believe. An additional grand jury, which is impaneled pursuant to this section, may serve for a period of one year from the date of impanelment, but may be discharged at any time within one year provided by order of the presiding judge. Oh, great, so he can bring them in and he can get rid of them. Well, forget that. In no event shall more than one additional grand jury be impaneled pursuant to this section at any time. When an additional grand jury is impaneled pursuant to this section, it may require into any matters that which are subject to grand jury inquiry and shall have the sole and exclusive jurisdiction to return indictments except for any matters which the regular grand jury is inquiring into at the time of its impanelment. Oh, that's basically just saying that one grand jury shouldn't be stepping on the other one's toes. Okay, that's fine. Uh... It is the intent of the legislature that all persons qualified for jury service shall serve as an equal opportunity and be constituted for service as criminal grand jurors in the county in which they reside. That should be domiciled, but anyway. And that they have an obligation to serve when summoned for that purpose. All persons selected for additional criminal grand jury shall be selected at random from a source of sources reasonably representative of a cross-section of the population which is eligible for jury service in the county. Okay, well, there's your answer. That's how they. That's how they pick them. So there really isn't any representation by the people. No, because you've all got you all have. This is clearly said right there that they're all residing. So these are all residents of people that are just floating around in commerce that are voting for a corporate governance that they pick out of the pool to determine. The rest of the corporate government. Sorry, the rest of the corporate governance, and then have them be incomplete grand juries because they don't have 25 that are then bringing indictments. If they even do indictments, they're probably just rubber rubber stamping indictments from the corporate council or the district attorney who's also traded as whatever county he's in off of Dun & Bradstreet. And probably basically being told from the judge how to run the county matters as far as the money's concerned, I'm thinking, I bet, because they'll probably control it. The judges would probably control the money of the county then, too, by giving suggestions to the grand jurors. I don't know how much leniency or how much leeway a civil grand jury would have in California. Now, you hear stories about runaway grand juries on the criminal side, but I've never heard of a runaway jury on the civil side. That would be pretty interesting. <laughs> yes, yes, it most certainly could. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, imagine how much stuff you could cut out of the budget and just stupidity in one year. That would, especially if 25 people seriously sat down and said, "Okay, we are running through every single budget, and we're going to find every single dollar that you've ever spent." And oh, by the way, because you're a corporation, when we bring you, when the grand jury gives a subpoena to give up your documents and your all of your records, you can't possibly say no. Because I've got, I have case law that states that uh, a grand jury that asks for a basic, a fiction of laws documents, a corporation's documents, the corporation cannot under any circumstances deny that subpoena. And if one of the corporate officers gets in the way or refuses to produce the documents to a grand jury of a corporation, that particular employee can be held for contempt under the grand jury and can be imprisoned and, and cannot be released on a habeas corpus at all until he produces the documents. I have case law on that, and it went into the grand jury manual. Because I, when I saw that, I was like, okay, that tells me that that's all the power I need. Well, we need. You don't give up your documents, you're going to jail, and you're going to sit there until you give them up. Well, if, they, if they imprison somebody, then, then they're not in a position to produce documents. Right, but you think the next guy that you're going to ask at the corporation to produce the documents is going to be stupid enough to say no? Yeah, correct. Absolutely not. Right, you only have to trap one. Right, that's right. Once the first mouse gets in the trap, they're like, oh, okay, we're not doing that again. That's an excellent find, David. Yeah, it changed my whole attitude about grand juries, that's for sure. Yes. But yeah, we'll have to think back and forth about the organization between the because we don't want to step on the we don't want to step on the, the township's power. It should be just for the everything that's in the county. So other than townships well it does speak about municipalities too in here. But cities would kind of have their own running and rule. I don't know what this particular civil grand jury from California says about the cross between a city and the county grand, the county civil grand jury. Mm-hmm. But, they, they, but like I said, a, I'll send this to you guys and you can look it over. They had a thing in, in Michigan, uh, well, you're aware of this, these outside stoves that people have for burning wood and they heat water to heat their house. Sure. And it's set outdoors. And uh, people were building those here right and left and putting them up outside their house and heating their house with them. Well, if they're not controlled properly, they, they can they can be a very unpleasant thing for stinking up the air at any time of day. And the county come by and they said that uh, they made a proclamation or law, statute, whatever, that <clears throat> any of those that were put out after a certain date had to be certified and had to be registered and had to be this and he had to get a permit in this whole nine yards. So see, that applied to everyone within the county, in the city, the township, the villages. 
see, to me, a situation like that could be used to our advantage. Now, I mean, not just to say that, okay, you guys have ex- obviously exceeded your jurisdiction and are trying to tell me what I can do on my own allodial land, but and also the maxim of law that states that necessity knows no law. But if the people of the county truly did want to, say, keep their air cleaner, they could convene the civil grand jury. The civil grand jury could commit, could uh, create a committee to look into the science and the applicability of that particular heat source from every single resource that they possibly could get their hands on, and then they would turn around and they would report to the whole entire assembly of the county hey, this is what we found out. These are the most efficient ones we could possibly find, and, and these ones that do this uh, help you out better, and they reduce the smoke. And you know what? Even after all this thinking, uh, five of us got together, and we built one that's a better design that even exists on the marketplace. And here, look what we built, right? To me, that's that's the most powerful thing of an assembly. When you get minds together, and it's a popular assembly is the people assembling to deliberate upon their rights. Well, isn't one of my rights to invent, to better my society? Uh, that's just, you know, that's the thought that I have off the top of my head. So, I yield. It'd be very interesting to know exactly in the very beginning, exactly the purpose and the responsibilities of the county government. Now, we learned in Michigan that it was an extension of the state. The counties were formed before townships, of course. And it was for the purpose of adjudication of court matters. Okay, well, looking at California, it's it's clearly, the, the counties are clearly self-governed by the civil grand jury. Uh, it doesn't state anywhere, at least that I've found, and I've gone through at least this whole one because I was skimming through it of all the information I could rip out of it to put into the into into, into our grand jury manual, the one I'm creating. Um, it, I couldn't see anything about state control governing these things at all. It was all on the county level. So, I mean, that pretty much takes care of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll give you an example here, another thing about power. Article 2, and it's an investigation of county, city, and district affairs. I'm just reading from this section. Um, Accounts and records of county officers, reports and recommendations. Cities or joint power agencies, examination of investigation and reports upon fiscal matters or needs. So you basically control the entire power grid. Expert and assistance, employment, compensation, auditors, and appraisers employed by examination of records or sorry, employed in examination of records. Oh, so you can employ experts to examine the county's records. Ah, funny. All right. Salaries of county elected officials report. Oh, great. So you get to go through this. You get to go through every single county elected official salary. Every one of them. Sure. Needs, of co- needs of county officers report. See, where it says report after all this, it has, it is, it has in this section, or sorry, in this grand jury manual, the civil grand jury manual, it talks about how you create a report. It tells you what you need to put in the report. It tells you how long it should take you to create a report. It tells you who gets to keep the report. It tells you where the report should go. All of this is in this thing. Um, you know, so order. This is that's what I think is interesting. 
order directing district attorney to institute actions for recovery of money due county. So what if you've got a big polluter in your county, right? And you go to the criminal grand jury and you go, you know what? We think these guys are dumping just way too much toxin. And you know what? Our people are starting to get cancer. We're going to start an investigation. The criminal grand jury runs a whole entire investigation, gets all the information, produces an indictment, and then turns around and then either prosecutes it themselves. The foreman either prosecutes themselves in a proper uh, court of record, or you give it to the district attorney and they prosecute the corporation polluting. But then you turn around with the civil grand jury after you win in court from them polluting, and you the civil grand jury turns around and orders the district attorney to institute actions for the recovery of money due the county from the same corporation that you just won against. There's your enforcement right there. How do you get out of that one? You don't. <laughs> that is excellent. Even though it's de facto, it's excellent. If you, but the thing is that you cannot uh, involve politics in any of this. No, exactly. It's straight and and honest, and there has to be integrity. Sure, because when when all of us are sitting on a civil, well, civil or criminal grand jury, uh, I'm pretty sure none of us are putting up our hands saying, "Oh, by the way, I'm a Democrat or Republican or whatever the hell." So we're just there. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, I'll send this thing. I'll, I'll let you guys t- t- you know t- skim through this thing like I did. I'll, you know, whatever you find is what you find. I'm gonna try and implement as much of it as I can in a way to make sense to balance the powers between townships, counties, and cities. And if there's anything else in here that uh, I can find or pull out of it that will do that, I will place it into my grand jury manual certainly. So, and I yield. So, I'd like to take the floor if I can. Can, yes. Am I unmuted? Oh, okay. Because I know it's getting close to your uh, witching hour where you're going to have to leave. There are two things I'd like to mention. And one is that we have, uh, at our last meeting on Tuesday, made a decision to drop the term Continental Grand Jury from our name and switch it to Assembly. So we're really becoming more like you where it's going to be the assembly of common law. And um, so that's, we've, we've made the decision to do it. Obviously that it's going to be de jure and all of that. The second thing I had sent an email to, to Joe at Comsec to, um, to send everybody an article that came out on Westwood in Colorado. That's an important one where all of us need to respond. Um, the, the, the fellow, his, uh, the journalist is Chris Walker. And uh, what he has done is open the doors for a conversation. And some of the things he's, he's you know, obviously been very closed about, but a good thing he did is that he took the military's research on the... Uh, he calls it a sovereign movement, but, you know, it's the de jure. And the military, the fellow, his name is Slater or something, 
said very clearly that don't take, these are not goofy people. Sure, there's some criminal activity that comes in, but what they're doing is correct and serious. And we want to do a bit of, you know, how we are very involved with education from here. So we are from the Illinois Assembly. We are actually going to respond to it uh, officially. And I'll, I'll certainly send you a copy of what we are going to do. But I appeal to the Assembly in Michigan to also uh, do make a response and take some of those ideas and turn and 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 move them around and push the agenda that is important because this is wonderful publicity. It's a it seems to be a well-read newspaper, but um, the readership will be there. And uh, we don't want them to be giving a wrong opinion of, uh, you know, or a biased opinion of um, uh, of what we are doing. Uh, one of the things that really distresses me a great deal is the amount of coverage he gave to Southern Poverty Law. But as it is, when somebody says something, if you don't object, that means you're accepting it, right? That's what. That's right. So we have to respond, and I don't know if you have it. Uh, if you don't, I can send it to you again. But I had sent it when it came out and was sent to me, uh, maybe about um, four days or so ago. Okay. Why don't you Why don't you send it again, and we'll have Joe send it out to us. Yes, and actually, everybody should see it. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to send you the actual article itself, and then I'll also send you the extracts that I have taken out, that I highlighted them. So those are the ones that we're going to address from Illinois. Mm -hmm. Then the one from Illinois, the response, uh, mine is only drafted, and so it needs to be made, you know, finished off, and then it will be circulated with a few of our members. And then I, once it's done, then I can I can send it to you. Uh, I don't want to send it to you prematurely because I don't want anyone, you know, you've got to have your own opinions and your own ideas about this, not that you'd be influenced by us, but you, somebody may be, you know. So all I'm doing is going to send you the actual cold article, um, and that extracts that I took out that I think are of value, that we need to sort of hammer it in there. Um, and um, and then we have to see how far this is going to go. I have a feeling it's really going to um, snowball. Okay. The, the timing is right. Okay. This is all worth taking a look at. Yes. For sure. And I'll send it to you right now. But my guess is it's 8 o'clock. The pumpkin just occurred. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And is, uh, uh, hello. What? Was just uh, Narveen and David on tonight from uh, Illinois? Yes. Um, I don't know if uh, Joseph is there or whether he, because very often he will be silently listening. Um, okay. And I don't know if Steve is there, but okay, they were well, informed. I was just curious to know who was all on tonight. Do you want to get together next Thursday? Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, very good. So do we. All right, then. 
thank you everyone from Illinois for being on this call tonight and thank you for all the help we got from everyone in Michigan and thank you Nick for running the board and thank you very much yes and we will see you next Thursday night thank you very right. much and, and I shall, I'll send you that email right now okay thank you and the Illinois committee will meet on Monday night to work on some more lessons Thank you very much, and good night. Good night. Good night. This one, Helping Other States Conference Call for Monday and Thursday, June the 6th, 2017, at 9.01 p.m. We'll see you back here next Thursday. Thank you for calling. Have a good night.